Let's pray. Father, it is good to gather uh, with my brothers and sisters this morning. We just want to make much of Jesus. Uh, we want to see him. We, we're like Peter who stepped on the water and had spiritual victory, and then we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start to sink, Lord. And we want to lift our eyes again on Jesus. Um, I pray that you put a watch about my mouth so I don't say anything that you don't want me to say. Uh, but, Lord, put a catapult there, too. Cause me to say everything you do want me to say, um, even things that I had not planned on in preparing and praying for this. I'm grateful that your grace is bottomless. Your mercy is without end. That you are a God who is so long-suffering, full of loving kindness and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would move by your spirit in our hearts so that we walk out of here saying, surely God was in our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are closing out a short series on what is absolutely foundational to an individual life and to our corporate life as a church, what is foundational to reaching out and reaching the lost. We could encapsulate this foundational thing in one word, love. And the scripture makes it clear that however good our theology, however diligent our service, man, even however deep our sacrifice to the point of burning our bodies, no, if we don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, we are but a clanging gong and tinkling brass. So a short series on the trifecta of love we need to have to reach out to the lost. Number one, two weeks ago, love for God. Number two, love for the church. As blemished as she, as we can be, right? Today we're going to look at love for the world. And we're going to dive right in, kind of two big headings. Number one, well, what exactly do you mean by love for the world, okay? And then once we establish that, I'm going to give us a few practical but powerful ways we can grow in the right kind of love. So first of all, what do we mean by love? And I'm going to be jumping around to a bunch of, bunch of different passages this morning just so you know. The word world, we're talking about loving the world. The word world appears some 186 times in your New Testament. And it is used in a bunch of different ways. I don't have the time to go across the different ways world is used. But let me say what I don't mean when I talk about loving the world. I don't mean in a 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 kind of way. Because there it says, love not the world, right? Neither the things of the world. Because uh, it says that all that's in the world is the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. He's saying, he's not, I'm not saying love the world in that kind of way because that love is not of the Father. It, it, there's a reason, and it says in James chapter 4, in verse 4, you idolaters, you adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So we're not talking about that kind of love. Are we clear? And, and, and the world there really means this fallen world system, 
a world that is an absolute rebellion to God and all the stuff and trinkets that go along with it. We're not talking about a 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 kind of love. What we are talking about, quite simply, is a John 3.16 kind of love. What does John 3.16 say? Yeah. The world's most famous verse. You can go watch a football game and the extra points kicked and up goes the John 3.16 sign. He's talking about people, right? For God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only begotten son. So when we're asking the question, what do we mean by loving the world? First of all, the object of our love would not be the systems of this world or the stuff of this world, but the people of this world. Y'all with me? So second of all, under this first question, what would be then the nature of the love that we're supposed to have for the people of the world? Came across a fascinating sermon called Levels of Love. I was just doing some research for this message last week. It was preached in 1965. After reading it, I, I discovered it was uh, preached by Martin Luther King. And in this message, he talks about various levels of love, all right? Starting with the lowest level of love. The lowest level, level of love, Dr. King said, was utilitarian love. Utilitarian love is simply motivated by what you get in return for your love to that object. So, for instance, when what you want from the object of your love stops coming to you, something you want or need, then you stop extending that love to that object. Maybe a simple illustration would be you have a friend at work. And your friend has an awesome cottage just north of Midland. And once a year, your friend invites you to take your family up to his cottage and stay there for a full week. You're loving on that person big time all year long, thinking, I'm going to get the invite. But a year comes by, and you don't get the invite, and guess what? Oh, okay, they're not going to offer it anymore. You stop loving that person. You can see this love isn't really love, right? This love is really self-focused. It's all banking on what you can get in return. It is motivated simply by its usefulness. It is 100% selfish. That's the lowest level of love King talks about. Then he dives into Scripture, and he talks about the word eros, from which we get the word erotic. It is romantic love. Romantic love can be different from utilitarian love because certainly in good eros, there is elements of wanting to bring joy, happiness, pleasure to the object of your eros, the object of your romantic love, even sacrificing for him or her. However, as good as that can be, it often does have elements, eros does, of what you may receive in return. And what's more is for good or for bad, for better or for worse, eros is motivated by some desirable attribute in the object of your love. Uh, maybe it's looks or intellect or humor, the way they make you feel. You get me? It, it, it's, it's motivated by some great quality in that person. So there's utilitarian love. There's eros, and then he goes to the Greek word storge. What does that mean? Anybody know what that word is? He's referring to family love, family love. Specifically, he dials in on a mother's love, 
A mother has a storge, uh, a maternal love, right, for, his, for her children. She has a deep care and compassion. And let's be clear, this is a really good thing, is it not? Is it not a really good thing? In fact, the Scripture tells us that one of the signs that a, that a society has gone sideways is that we stop having even natural family affection or storge love. So it's a good thing. However, even storge love has its limitations. King notes that it's a love, uh, a level of love that's, that's reserved only for a woman's own children. He even says sometimes it's a level of love reserved even just for the firstborn. And while that woman may love kids outside of her family, she decidedly, likely, doesn't love those kids right the way she loves her own kids. So this is motivated by family connection, storge love. But it's, it's a higher level. Then he goes to philia, and that's the easiest one. Philia simply means a kind of love for friends that makes it seem like they're family. Sometimes even closer than family, right? Philadelphia means what? City of brotherly love from the word philia. Now, the thing about philia love is it's, it's, it's really kind of rooted in something you might have in common with the object of philia love. You know, maybe there's a similarity in the way you look or where you live or the things you like to do. In other words, its motivating factor is what you share in common or simply having fun with that person. It's good as far as it goes, but it's not the highest level of love. Now, you guys with me so far? So you got utilitarian love, motivated only by how much it will help you. Then you have eros, motivated by some good quality in the object that you have eros for. Then you have storge, that's motivated by the fact that there's a family connection. All right? Then you have philia, motivated by something you have in common or something you like to do with that person. Then he takes us to the highest level of love. And you guys know this word. What is that? Agape love. Agape love is costly love that only wants the best for the object of your, of your agape love without any expectation of anything in return. In other words, you ain't doing it so you'll get something back. It's not transactional. It is unconditional. Now, where do we see this most viscerally and clearly displayed? Where do we see this? At the cross, at the cross, right? Right at the cross. Now let me back off and talk about how God created us out of his agape love, and then he redeems us out of his agape love. Sometimes uh, our songs that we sing can lead us astray. It's not like the Father, Son, and Spirit were hanging out eons ago, and Jesus turned and says, hey, Father, and then he turns to the Spirit and he says, hey, Spirit. We are one and three, three and one, and it's great hanging out with you, but this is just kind of getting kind of boring. It's just us up here. We've got to do something. I know what we can do. Let's create some beings in our image. That's not how it went down, right? We believe in something the Scripture calls the aseity of God, A-S-I-E-T-Y or E-I, whatever. And that doctrine says this. The Scripture teaches that God is eternally Existent for one. He, there was never a time when God was not, right? Always existent, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But he's not only eternally self-existent, he's eternally self-sufficient. God was not bored. He was quite good. He was complete in himself. So he created us not out of any need but out of love. And he redeemed us, okay? He sent his son Jesus to redeem us not for the good of himself, right, but for the good of us at the cost of his agape, self-sacrificial, I ain't getting anything in return, love. And that's why King said, well, he said, we have probably never truly loved somebody until we have truly loved an enemy. That's pretty weighty, isn't it? So when I ask the question, what does it mean that we are to love the world, not a 1 John 2 kind of way, a John 3.16 kind of way, namely, we are to love the people of the world, whoever they are, pursuing their good even at cost with no expectation of return. Is that clear? That's where we're going. And the, and, and, and the good we pursue for people may be all kinds of things. It may be clean water and justice and a place to live and food, the all good stuff. That's all stuff we should pursue for people. But the ultimate good we always need to pursue for people is what? Salvation, a relationship with God. And this is really great commandment stuff, loving God with everything in you, right? and loving your neighbor as yourself, and also great commission stuff. Now, I want to close out this first point by asking the question, how are you doing with that? I want to ask myself, how am I doing with this? I want to ask us as Restore Church family, how are we doing with this? In another book that Obi and I are reading for our evangelism cohort, the author gives an illustration of a guy named Caleb. He was going to be the outreach pastor of a church of about 500 in northern Illinois called Heartland Church. When he showed up, he wanted to put his finger on the pulse of this church to see, well, do they love people to the end of pursuing their good without any hope of anything in return except their good? And so he went to a bunch of restaurants that people from the church would often frequent after a service or during the week, some across the street, some across town, but he just found out where people went. He went to one particular restaurant that was basically across the street from the church, spent a little time there, struck up a conversation with a waitress and then a manager. He asked them, how long have you been uh, working at this establishment? And the waitress said, I've been here five years, and the manager said, I have been here ten years. He politely pressed in a little bit further. He said, hey, have you ever heard of Heartland Church? Do you know where Heartland Church is? Do you know that it exists? And they looked at each other, the waitress and the manager said, no, no, not me. How about you? No, not me either. So then he pressed on a little bit further. He said, has there ever been anybody come into this restaurant who maybe offered to pray for you or, or share a scripture or tell you about Jesus or tell you a spiritual story? Again, they looked at each other and said, no, not me. How about you? No, not me. And it turned out that hadn't happened. He then um, identified himself as, as one of the pastors at the church, at Heartland Church. He pointed across the large, across the, 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 the dining room, uh, out through the parking lot to the uh, building across the street. And he says, that's actually our church, uh, Heartland Church. And I'm one of the pastors there. And the waitress said, oh, I always wondered if that was a church. I just wasn't sure. I guess it was like a warehouse kind of church building. And then the, uh, the owner or the manager, seizing an opportunity uh, to do some business, pulled out his business card, 
told uh, Pastor Caleb, he said, listen, would you let the church know that you're part of, that we, that we love two things. We love good people, we love good food, and we love people, and we would love for you to come and dine in our establishment. And Caleb said, this is so paradoxical, so ironic. There, this restaurant, in just one conversation, the workers there told them more about their good news, good food, coming in here, than a church that had people visit hundreds of thousands, if not thousands of times to come in and never had told them about the real, ultimately good news in Jesus Christ. That illustration hit me. So I'm asking myself, and maybe you can ask yourself, and maybe we can ask ourselves, if someone went to our circle of life, let's just start with our family, and then go to our neighborhood, and then our workplace, wherever we hang out, wherever we do life, and somewhere to say, hey, has that, that person ever asked to pray for you or told you about Jesus or just tried to encourage you in some way, what would they answer for you? What would they answer for us? What would they answer for me? And I'm not, I'm not asking this question, by the way, to kind of grind us down into the ditch of guilt, right? That is an unsustainable fuel source for a life that makes a difference for the kingdom of God. I'm just asking us because maybe that will create a bit of a hunger, right, to have that kind of unconditional agape love for people in the world that we happen to connect with in everyday life. Because here's the deal. If you are a true believer, if you have truly turned from your sin and trusted Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, if you've trusted Jesus, do you know who lives inside of you? The third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And, and, and even if it's a little dead and dormant and cold right now, there is at least within your soul a flicker of love for a lost and dying world. Amen? It's in there because he's in there and he's all about that. So number one, what do we mean by love for the world? Somebody call it out, small group. Go ahead. What do we mean by love for the world? Agape love, which is what kind of love? Ain't getting nothing in return. I just want to do you good love, and the ultimate good is you coming to know Jesus Christ. Now, let me suggest three ways to grow or fan the flame of this love for a lost world, all right? And you might have the outline in front of you. Number one, I was thinking long and hard about this for a while. I just wanted to reduce this into three, I think, essentials so that if, like, if, you, if you have, like, say there's a, a, um, a graph, your love for the world right now, if you're honest, is a zero, like ice cold, or it's a 10, sizzling hot. Wherever you are, three, four, five, six, I believe that if you apply these three truths, you will move at least one degree in greater love for the world this week simply by applying these things. Number one. Make it black and white. Now, what do you think I mean by that? Thank you. I'm, I'm not talking about ethnicity at all, okay? I'm simply using that expression the way we often use the expression. It's cut and dry. It's this or that, but it's not both. It's black and white. Because the world wants to do this. The world and the world system we find ourselves in the midst of wants us to categorize people in thousands of ways, right? 
to label people because we're driven often by fear or insecurity, sometimes outright hostility, often a love of power, the protection or attainment thereof. The world is just pressing us to put people into all kinds of compartments and categories. So, for instance, you have the category, speaking of black and white, of race. And by the way, if we're going to be biblical, and we probably should be, do you know how many races of people there really are? Acts 17, verse 26 says, by one man he has made every ethnos. We all, if you believe the biblical creation story, have the same original parents, Adam and Eve. Now, that said, God did divinely design ethnicity, right? And often the world, because of those bad, bad motivators, categorize, oh, there's a black person, there's a white person, you know, there's a, there's a brown person, a yellow person, a red person. I mean, that's the way the world talks about it, right? Or we want to divide the world into genders. And, and by the way, let me, just, let me just enlighten you. It's not just male and female. The Google search I did this morning said there's 72 different genders going right now. Or the world wants to categorize us by political persuasion, right? There's a Republican. There's a Democrat. There's a conservative. There's a liberal. Or there's a progressive. Or the world wants to categorize us by, say, class. And if you take some of those other markers, according to some thinking, that's the class of the oppressed, and that's the class of the oppressors, and that's how they want to divide us. And then, you, and let me lighten things up a little bit. You have Michigan and Michigan State, okay? By the way, did you see that mom a couple years ago? She had a son who played for both teams, and so she stitched together an MSU and the good school uh, football uniform. I'm not even going to talk about Ohio State because I should not say things like that in the house of God. But seriously, the world just wants to categorize us, right? And often we play right into the world's hand. What's your stance on that position? Instead of learning a little bit more why that's your stance, boom, you're over there. Boom, you're over there. And, and, and behind it, just, just listen for the hiss. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness in high places. See, the enemy wants us to destroy ourselves because he hates God and therefore he hates us. Image bears one race ultimately of humanity. Friendly fire ain't so friendly. You talk to a combat vet who's caught a, a NATO 556 five, round somewhere in their body, had reconstructive surgery or a whole... It may have come from a rifle on the same side, but it wreaked a lot of damage on them. And I just say to you, there's an enemy, there's suicide, there's homicide. He wants us to create, to commit humanity side, right? He wants us to destroy ourselves. American history tells this story, right? But, but let's just put American history aside, for instance, and just be honest and say, world history, good night, tells this story, right? Ever since the fall, let's go back to Cain and Abel, hating each other, right? Hostility. Now, some of these categories I mentioned are flat out of the devil. And we need to have 
the spiritual courage to say as much in love. There's two genders. And we could go down some of these categories I said. Some of them are not of the devil. They're just temporary, right? And they're good insofar as they go as long as they don't jump over your ultimate identity of being in Jesus. And then some of these identities are really good. In fact, they're going to be eternal categories for the glory of God. Revelation 7, 9, people from every ethnos. There's that word again. We are forever going to be our gender. So some of these things are, are going to be eternal, but even that being the case, they are not our primary identity. And they ought not to be the primary way, the primary way in which we look at ourselves and look at life around us and look at others around us. So what do I mean then? Let's make it black and white. Here's what I mean. We need to look at the world primarily, I'm not saying solely or only, so don't misquote me, okay? All these other things do matter. But what I am saying is the ultimate way we need to look at the world is in one of two categories, saved or lost. And if you don't get that right, things unravel very quickly. These are Jesus' words. Well, let me start with 1 John. 1 John 5.12 breaks humanity up into one of two groups. He that has the Son has what? He that does not have the Son does not have. John 3.36 puts it this way. He that believes on the Son has life. He that does not obey the Son does not have life. Oh, and the wrath of God abides on him. This is Jesus teaching 101, man. Do you know how often Jesus made it that clear and that binary? He told stories from everyday life to illustrate that. He talked about the end of the age was going to be this drag net, this big fishing net. And at the end of the age, those fish are going to be separated. Not by class, ethnicity, gender, nothing like that. No, good fish and bad fish. Did he not talk about wheat and tares? Or how about this? And, and I think it's the Gospel of Luke. It says, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Not because, oh, man, I can't believe you guys are those liberal Sadducees. Oh, I can't believe you're those conservative Pharisees. No, no, no. He didn't, he didn't weep over them because they were in some human construct. He wept over them because he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stones the prophets. How often I would, I would have received you, but you would not come. That's what he was broken about. They remained steadfast in their lostness, whatever other category they shared. And then he put it this way. Matthew 9, verse 36. And Jesus had compassion on the people because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Not because of some group they were in, because, but because they were lost. And so I'm just trying to make it plain that we need to look at the world not exclusively, but primarily through saved and lost. I remember I'd just become a Christian, got out of the Marine Corps. Susan and I moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, bought our first house, thought I was going to be there forever and a day. You know, I was working at a plant as a production guy. And um, we went one, one Saturday, we just, we, we took, I think it was just, yeah, Kevin at the time, and we went to some small little town in an area, beautiful little town. They're having a, 
like a Saturday uh, city affair, and there was face painting and music and good food and all that stuff. It was just a great time. But this, this must have been the Spirit of God. I was just freshly born into the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, my heart became devastated. I think this is part of my calling to ministry because I looked at this city square full of people, and it occurred to me every one of these people are going to live somewhere forever. And there were lost people there and saved people there. And, and family, I just, with everything that we're reading and hearing right now, and educate yourself, please seek to look at people through the primary lens. Are they in Christ or out of Christ? Because then that will bubble up or fan that flame of wanting to increase this category and shrink that category through our life and our lips. Amen? Number one, see it black and white. Number two, love where you are by stepping to people. Oh, my goodness, I just looked at the time. This is an abbreviated service, okay? Let me hustle, all right? And I'm not fast anyway, so. Step, love people where they are by stepping to and not around them. Stepping to them and not around them. Um, kind of two elements to this. The first element is love people where they are, or where, I should say where you are. Last week, I mentioned one of the sad dynamics of living in the information age. Now, there's a lot of good things about living in the information age, okay? So, it, it's not bad, okay? Like, I'm not saying we should go back to Amish land, though sometimes it's quite tempting, okay? There are upsides to living in the high-tech age, distribution of information and, like, and whatnot, but... I mentioned one of the downsides is we can, we can feed this, this self-induced illusion and delusion that by chiming in our opinion on everything while not doing anything for where we can, right? Where we actually live, about loving people where we are. And what's interesting is 55 years ago when King preached the sermon, he said something that I think taps into that dynamic of not loving people where we are and acting like we love people afar. It goes like this. He quotes Dachevetsky. I won't say that again. It's a Russian author. Maybe you've heard of him. I could never say that word twice the same way. He's a Russian novelist, and he has a famous quote that goes like this. I love humanity in general so much that I really don't love anybody in particular. Hmm. He goes on to say, and this is so apt, so appropriate, so applicable for this point, it's so easy to love on an abstraction called humanity and not actually love individual human beings. He said, think of the millions, this is 65, he says, 1965, he says, think of the millions of dollars raised by many of the white churches in the South and all over America sent to Africa for the missionary effort because, um, because of humanitarian love. And yet, if those Africans who got that money came into their churches to worship on Sunday morning, they may kick them out. They love humanity in general, but they don't love Africans in particular. There's always a danger in humanitarian love versus real agape love. So who is, who is the one that you have a hard time loving? Huh? Fill in the blank, because the categories extend in every direction beyond the explicit example, I believe, that King gave. 
our love for people cannot be in general if it's going to be a real real love it must be specific namely loving people where you are you don't have to wonder who should i love the answer is who do you live around that's it that's the answer you don't need no phd in anything you can see that whiteboard back there i hate it preaching to a camera it was one of the coldest most sterile things ever still doing it a little bit but i'm glad we're all here together and like the second or third Sunday, I just got so tired of that. I said, I need, I'm not preaching to people in general. I'm preaching to, the, to, the, to my family members at Restore. So we just, all the elders, we just started writing down the names of Restore members and regular attenders so we could literally see their names and love them in particular. Now, I use that illustration because I would challenge you, maybe you don't have a whiteboard at home, but you have a sheet of paper Draw a circle and say, okay, and make it so obvious, here's my family, write down their names. How can I agape love them? And then do your neighbors, maybe stretch around, just maybe your block. And then say your workplace, say your ball team or, 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 or your hobby or your group, and start putting real flesh and blood names behind them. That's who you are. Forget any other human categories. Forget that for a minute. Just love who's in your sphere of life. How about that? And you will find there's a lot of cross-section of categories likely, right? So that's what I mean by love where you are. But now how about this second element, love where you are by stepping to and not doing a double envelopment around. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't have time to read it, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that? Scribe comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Master, I think I'm killing it. But just to check with you, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, basically, you need to love God with everything in your gut, right? Heart, soul, strength, mind, right? And then he adds, eh, oh, yeah, and, this, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So then the scribe says, well, who's my neighbor? See, he wants definitions, right? He wants to be able to box in what he can do and what he's supposed to do and what he shouldn't do and all that. And Jesus says, he tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Guy laid out on the side of the road. Priest, you would think would minister to him? No, goes around him, right? Levi, you think? Levitical law, all that, meticulous about God's word, he would step to him. Nope, steps around. It's the good Samaritan, the one that it wasn't even looked upon real well in Jewish society. He goes and serves them. And here's, here's the point I'm trying to quickly make from that parable. We tend to step around people who are different than us. Whether or not they're on the side of the road, right? We just tend to do that because that's kind of out of our Philadelphia, our commonality love, right? So we tend to step around them, and this parable instructs us, instructs us to step to people. How? What do we do? Well, how about just taking the initiative? Hey, what's up? How you doing? I live over here. I've seen you around. That simple. Stepping to them, serving them, but also doing this, put yourself in a place where they can serve you listening to them, learning about them, their experience, their families, their goals, their heartbreaks, their dreams. And doing, listening doesn't mean you co-sign everything they say, okay? It just means you're being an agape human, that's all. In fact, if, if it's a real relationship, you can actually talk about anything and everything as you listen to each other. Now, it does not take a whole lot of intuition, does it, to know you're in the presence of a person like that. It does, it's not a matter of being an extrovert. A loud mouth is always talking. <laughs> it's not a matter of being an introvert. But have you, listen, 
Have you ever been around a person where it is obvious that they just love people? They love people unconditionally without expecting anything in return. They just love because, man, God must be real in their life. Do you know anybody like that in your life? Two, three, what, what names come to your mind right now? I would say kick it with them a minute. Spend some time with them. See what drives them to manifest this agape love. And if you struggle with this, I'm really happy about that. Because that means you ain't laying over and laying on the side of the road not doing anything, right? It actually means you're fighting against passivity to love agape whoever is in your sphere of life. The third and closing thing I want to say is just stay at the well. What do I mean by stay at the well? Jesus stood up, John chapter 7, the Feast of Booths. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For out of his, out of her heart, if you drink of me, will flow streams of living water. In other words, as you connect with me, you will be a source of salvific refreshment for those horizontally around you. So you have to be in fellowship with Jesus. You're going to have no giddy-up in your gut to love this kind of way, right? Unless you're, you're, you're spending much time at the feet of Jesus. And as you're sitting at the feet of Jesus, this is what's going to grow. This has to grow for this to happen. Your understanding of the amazing grace of God at the cross that, if we're honest, sometimes doesn't feel so amazing. We get so used to it, being church people, right? The only way we will ever agape love people, whether they're different or not, forget being different. It's hard to love those closest to us that kind of way, right? Because of our sin nature and their sin nature and the whole mess that it makes. The only way we can ever agape love people different or, or not different, enemies real or perceived, is if we are being struck again and again and again, and yet again, and again, by the depth of God's infinite agape love for us while we were yet sinners. So here's the truth, baby. We were at enmity with God. We hated God. Oh, we might have dressed it up in religion, right? But the true and living God? We were basically giving God, if you'll forgive me, the middle finger. And we, 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 could, we could dress it up in religion if we want to or irreligion, but we were, we were enmity with God. And somebody says, I know somebody here says, oh, that's just kind of strong, man. I mean, yeah, I needed Jesus, but, but I exercised my power to come to Jesus, unlike the chumps over there. Can I give you some truth as we close here? You had no power to come to Jesus outside of God's grace. You had no power to change outside of God's grace. Can the leopard change his spots, Jeremiah says? Or Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless it is given to him. So, no, 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 no. You had no power to come to Jesus and no power to change. Somebody says, okay, well, maybe that's the case. But I was at least wanting to change. Can I give you a little bit more truth? John chapter 3 says, and this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil does not come to the light lest his deeds be revealed. We had no power to come to Jesus. We were not willing to come to Jesus. Somebody says, oh, okay, okay, I'll grant you that, but I really was seeking God. Can I give you a little bit more truth? 
Romans 3, verse 11 and 8, there is none that seeks after God. We had no power to come to Jesus. We weren't willing. We weren't seeking. Somebody says, okay. But I understood spiritual truth. I was raised in church. Can I give you just a little bit more truth? Romans 3, 11b, there is none that understands. Or 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, for the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. You had no power to change outside of God's special grace. You weren't willing to change. I wasn't. I wasn't seeking God. I was seeking a version of God that I want to be okay with me, my lifestyle. I didn't really understand spiritual truth beyond being able to quote a few verses. Somebody says, okay, but don't take this away from me. I had a good heart. Can I give you just a little bit, smidge more truth? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, man, desperately what? Wicked. All right, let's wrap this up. But I just have to be honest. You were not, you were not. He didn't have the power to come to Jesus. He weren't wanting to come to Jesus apart from his grace. You weren't seeking God. I wasn't. You weren't understanding spiritual truth. You did not have a good heart. Okay, somebody says, but, but I had at least this. There was something in me that loved God. One last smidge of truth. You did not love the true and living God apart from his grace. Because it says in Romans 8, 7, we were at enmity, hostility with God, which is where I started this whole little Hypothetical conversation. Here's the deal. Here's the deal, man. We were drowning in a cesspool. And you know what a cesspool is, right? Just picture that. In a cesspool of rebellion and sin and iniquity. And I'll do it my way, thank you, God. You can be there on the side for when I need you. Even putting a chalice down and drinking that stuff and poisoning ourselves, we were, listen, we were just splashing about in the cesspool thinking in our lostness and blindness and hardness and our rebellion that we're actually splashing around in a five-star hotel hot tub drinking a pina colada. That, until the Spirit broke in and showed us the reality of our sin and the reality of the Savior. And you know what Jesus did? He dove into this cesspool for us. That's what the cross is about. That's why we should be staggered. And listen, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in agape love put a full court press on us. The Father sought you. He chose you. If you're in Christ, you can look back. You don't, you don't say, hey, did the Father choose you? No, you preach the gospel. But now I look back, the God put his affection on me. And it wasn't because I was the best player on the team. I was the worst player. Too shy, uh, shoot, my, I can't even talk. I was such a bad player, all right? <laughs> Shoestrings tied together. Couldn't do anything. He says, oh, come on on my team. In other words, he didn't pick me because he saw something great in me, but out of his agape love, right? And Jesus, he went to the cross, and, man, he bat a thousand. He atoned for his people. He paid our price in fullness. And then the Spirit, he worked to open your eyes to your sin. In other words, the Father sought you, the Son bought you, and the Spirit caught you. This is the well we need to live at. So may we be again and again stunned by the fathers, the sons, the spirits of agape love so that we are stirred to extend that to others. And I just think that if you apply and I apply these three principles this week, I'm going to see things black and white, saved and lost. 
I'm going to really intentionally and practically seek to love people where I am by stepping to and not around and staying at the well, washing myself and learning about grace more and more. I think wherever you're at, if you're a zero, you do that, you're going to be at least a one next week. And you know what? That's pretty doggone good if you were a zero, right? And if you're a three and you move to five, hey, that's awesome. Because this is the foundational stuff of a church that loves the lost and makes a dent, a big dent into the kingdom of darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you so much for today. Um, Lord, I pray that you would burn anything away that was not useful and put the pedal to the metal on everything that was. Um, may we be a people who are so struck by the agape love of our God that we want to extend it to those around us, whether they'll like us or not, because that's what you've done for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.